You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 43. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Vensel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also Teaching Reading with Bob Books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. You can hear more from me on my other podcast, Aftercast. My co-host today is Misty Winkler. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and too many projects. She writes about practical classical homeschooling and organizing attitudes at Simply Convivial. We'd just like to briefly apologize for the sound issues. There's a little bit of clicking and skipping. So, a word of advice. If you usually listen to this show on one and a half speed or faster, you're going to want to slow it down and listen at regular speed. This episode is sponsored by Learning Well. Did you miss out on our September Learning Well retreat? Not to worry, the replay package is now available. You can plan your own individual retreat, or you can still do a group retreat event. For more details, go to scalaysisters.com slash learn. Our guest today is Martin Cothran. Mr. Cothran is the director of the Classical Latin School Association and the editor of Memoria Press's Classical Teacher magazine. He is the author of several books for private and home schools, including Memoria Press's Traditional Logic, Material Logic, and Classical Rhetoric Programs, as well as Lingua Biblica, Old Testament Stories in Latin. Now that his children are grown, Martin spends a good amount of time reading aloud to his wife. In addition to all of this, Martin is known for his knowledge of forgotten classics, really good books almost no one remembers. It was our pleasure to discuss with Martin the nature of these books and how to find them. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. Let's start off with our Scalay every day. So, Misty, do you want to go first and show us how it's done since Martin is new to the show? (laughs) Sure. So, I thought it would be appropriate to do Lonesome Gods this time since that was a book we mentioned on our last podcast. And while we were recording, I bought it on Amazon (laughs) because it's not a Scully Sisters episode till a book's been bought. That's right. (laughs) And then I read it on the airplane to and from our Scully Sisters retreat. And I copied out a page and a half worth of quotes from it. It was really, really good. So... Pam was right. <laughs> <laughs> I have not finished it because I got sick on the way home. So no reading happened, even no, though I was traveling I for know, eight hours. Sad. All I did was sleep, which wasn't nearly as exciting, but probably necessary. <laughs> <laughs> so the first quote that I copied down from it was really appropriate to our retreat topic, which was learning well, uh, because it was, he who ceases to learn is already a half dead man. Ooh. And then I really liked this quote. Uh, Shakespeare is the only poet who wrote like he'd been raised on red meat. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice one. So Hmm. how about you, Brandy? Uh, Mine is going to be Robinson Crusoe, which is not a forgotten classic. It's just a regular classic. (laughs) Um, But... Uh, I am reading it aloud probably for the last time. I was going to say, I'm sure you've read it before. Yeah. So in Ambleside Online, it is assigned for year four. And out of my four kids, only one of them was able to read it on her own at that age because it's about 10 years old, sometimes nine. So this is the third time and final time because he's my youngest reading it aloud. And it it's funny. It. I mean, classics really are those books that you can read over and over again and get something new out of it each time. And so we had a rough summer and I'm reading this whole section from Robinson Crusoe. And basically it's about how he had to learn to to be content. And, you know, he's isolated on this island and 
he talks about the connection between contentment and gratitude and about how really if he wasn't finding himself content, it was because he wasn't being grateful for the things that the Lord had given him. And anyway, hmm. you know, I've read the book so many times and never noticed that part. It's just funny how something you know, new jumps out at you each time you read a book like that. So I'm reading it al- um, aloud to my 10-year-old and I feel like, man, it's, it's feeding my soul <laughs> to read this book, which has been so, so nice in the busyness of life to be able to read a good book with him that I feel like is for me and not just for him. Kind of sad, though. We'll be saying farewell to Mr. Crusoe, at least with my kids, maybe not grandkids, but there you go. <laughs> That's a long way off. <laughs> so, Martin, what about you? What are you reading? Well, uh, to my grandson, um, we're reading the old fairy tales. Um, Hansel and Gretel is the current Ooh. favorite. And, and of course, this is a young child, so one reads it over and over and over again. And there's something about the possibility of being <laughs> dead that focuses a child's attention, I notice, particularly <laughs> boys. Uh, so we're, really, there's, the fairy tales are, are, are amazing. Now, they're a mixed bag, really, so in terms of the quality. And, uh, but the, the classic ones like Hansel and Gretel and the Princess and the Pea and Snow White uh, are just are wonderful stories. And, uh, and you see these, these archetypes over and over again in, in children's and adult literature that it's nice to familiarize them with early. Oh, I miss those days. How old is he? He is five. Such a great age. I love it. it It is. So what version are you reading? I am reading, it's an old, and again, here we're talking about lost classics, uh, it's a, it's an old. Uh, I don't even I don't even know what edition it is because I've got I've got a number of them, but it's an old cloth bound blue, uh, blue book with all of the the classic fairy tales and tall tales as well that go from the ones mm. for very young children to uh, later in the book the longer ones for older children, and it's just it's just a classic collection of them from some of the older translations. A lot of the newer ones, particularly with the fairy tales, uh, because you know we we can't have the the little the three little pigs being eaten or anything so. Uh, they, they take out some, which I think is actually important. They need to get used to the idea, some of these <laughs> yes. ideas uh, in a safe environment, if you will. And that whole idea, uh, you know, even in something like where the wild things are, where, where one of the monsters says, I'll, I'll eat you up. I love you. So uh, you need to understand those kinds of ideas. And if you take away all of the, the stuff that we modern people consider, you know, uh, sort of on the edge, like, like, certain characters being eaten or something like that. I think we take away some of the effect of them and it's a good effect, I think. Yes. My kids won't have any three little pig version where the pig doesn't end up eating the wolf in the end. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yes. There is a little little bit of revision wow. that goes on. <laughs> in one of ours the wolf comes down the chimney, you know, into oh, the yeah, boiling yeah. pot of water. You there know, you so See? That's more civilized, I guess, than just nearly eating them uncooked. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Wolf stew. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. That's funny. I got to tell you guys, I have this. Um, well, I don't have it anymore because I threw it away as a demonstration of my feelings about this book. But so my kids, especially like my 16 year old, when he was little, he loved the story of Ricky Ticky Tavi, which isn't even that old of a story. But we would read it over and over and over again. And <laughs> I don't know, somebody caught wind that he liked this. And so they bought him, you know, I was reading it out of a collection of Kipling stories. So someone bought him a picture book with just that story in it. And um, I don't know if they realized it had been revised or not, but oh my <laughs> gosh, instead of him, instead of Ricky Tikitavi being the hero and facing the danger and killing the snake and earning his place in the family and all that kind of stuff, I am not joking when I say, the moral of the story was that he learned to stay at home and be safe. What? It was so bad. It was just. Yeah. <laughs> All of these versions of some of the older stories that try to, to reverse them in some way, like, you know, the three little pigs from the wolf's perspective. And there's a whole genre of this stuff. Um, and a lot of kids learn that before they learn the, the, the fairy tales themselves. So they don't even get what makes those even humorous at all, which is a reversal from the original, the original because they don't know what the, mm. the original is. They, 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 mm-hmm. Some of them, that's all they've heard is that. What's the, I'm starting to think of the movie that does that, the really popular animated movie, the green guy of the, the 
I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, but uh, oh yeah, Shrek. Shrek. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's what Shrek does. And but a lot of people, a lot of these children are seeing Shrek, and they don't know any of the things that they're making fun of. So. Hmm. It's interesting because I've met a couple kids that have seen that. I didn't let my kids see those when they were little because I wanted them to know the originals. Yeah, right. But um, I you know met a couple kids who loved Shrek. This was a few years ago when it was more popular. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting because they took it in as just a story. They they didn't really find it very funny except for the kind of the bathroom humor part. Right. Exactly. But they they totally didn't get the exactly. jokes. Exactly. You only get the jokes if you know the original. Yeah. Well, um, let's transition to our topical discussion and talk about these lost classics. And um, I got to tell you, you know, Misty told me that she met you at GHC and talked to you about having you on the podcast and you recommended this topic. And I thought, oh, this is so great because I heard you on a podcast, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and you were talking a little bit about this subject or it came up, I guess, in the context of a larger discussion. And you mentioned... Oh, goodness. It's these, it, the old Squire's Farm. Oh, yes. That's oh, what yes. it was. And so just on a whim, I bought one of the books. Now we have two, but I bought one of the collections and started reading those aloud to my children and could not believe how good they were. I mean, I just, I couldn't believe that these were not published and promoted the way, you know, Little House on the Prairie still is or Little Britches still is or that kind of thing. Because they were totally in that genre and so good. My kids just loved it. So I'm hoping that in the midst of this larger discussion, you'll share more titles with us that, that Misty <laughs> yeah. and I could buy during the recording. Yeah. I have my uh, Amazon tab open. <laughs> and read to our kids. Do you really? Oh, I feel like you're cheating. Martin, you got to know she always beats me to the best price. Oh, is that right? And so yeah, she, she buys it before I do. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a competition. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in, in, in uh, yeah, Old Squire's Farm was exactly, I think, probably what I was thinking of when I suggested the topic, which I don't remember doing. But, <laughs> but I, I call that the the northeastern little house on the prairie. Uh, yes. It's sure. it's got that same poignancy, uh, sadness. You know, has you laughing, has you crying, and um, I guess we can talk about that book later. But I, that is definitely one of the one of the lost classics that more people should know about. And it goes it goes in and out of print. I think it's probably out of print right now. And it's 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 tragic because uh, it's a wonderful book that in its companion volume, Skating on Ice. Yeah. Yes, that was the other one I bought because I hunted it down after I realized there was more than one. It was just so good, and I loved. I, I know we're starting off with talking about a book instead of the general idea, but I loved this feeling of duty toward the grandparents that the children had. It was very unique in that I don't think I've encountered that a lot as an idea in other books that we've read. And we've done tons of reading aloud over the years. But I think that was the first one that really talked about, or gave a visual, I guess, on what it would mean to take care of your elderly, do right by them, like how important it was for them to not be lonely. And I just, all that, it was very, I mean, it was, it was good for me as I was trying to help my own grandma and everything to read this book and see this embodiment of that kind of duty. Yes. And and of course, uh, uh, so your audience knows that that book was about uh, a, a number of children that were brothers and sisters and, and cousins who went to live with the old squire and his wife on their farm in Maine during the Civil War because the old squire and his wife, their three sons, were killed in the Civil War. And so all these cousins mm. came to live with their grandparents and they raised them. And what you're referring to there you know, uh, is, is uh, when they all grow up. And move away, like many children do, and they they go off to various parts of of the Northeast there, and they I guess write each other. I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly how that, how it happens, but I think they write each other, and and it's Christmas time. They all decide they're going to go home and visit their grandparents who raised them at Christmas, and of course at this time they must have been quite elderly, so they they all come uh, back home and they meet in the yard, and the and the their grandparents don't know that they're coming to visit, so. One of you know they go up to the window of the kitchen and they look in, and there are their old grandparents eating Christmas dinner all by themselves. And so they come in and they surprise them and they spend about a week there. But before they leave, uh, they all meet in the barn and they realize that they're getting mm-hmm. old and they can't take care of themselves. And here they are, their grandparents invested their lives in them, and they realize they needed to do something. So they realize that one of them needed to stay there and take care of them. And it turned out to be the writer of the stories 
he stayed and he took care of, the, of, of those mm-hmm. of the old squire and his wife till they died. And he became the one of the editors of Youth's Companion magazine, which is a very popular magazine in the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, you know, one of those magazines they'd sent out to, you know, uh, homes and prairie and they would read these things cover to cover. And he was one of the editors and wrote these beautiful stories. He, he, he wrote those stories over the course of many years about being raised by the mm-hmm. old squire and his wife. And, and that, that last story about them coming home was quite, quite poignant. Mm-hmm. It was very moving. Yes. So mm-hmm. let's talk about these lost books. I, I mean, you seem to have just this wealth of, of a list of lost books up your sleeve. Where, where do you find, I mean, did you just read and find these books or, or where, where do they come from? I feel like you have a secret. <laughs> I have a secret. Method. Well, you know, we're all looking for a technique for everything, right? And there really isn't one. There really isn't one here. I mean, this, this comes from, you know, a whole uh, several decades of trial and error with books for our own children. And, you know, you, you'd get them in different places. I forget the name of the author who wrote the Read Aloud Handbook, but I remember him being on uh, Focus on the Family or something years and years ago. And and I learned about the Bill Pete books, you know, which which uh, he was a Disney illustrator who did oh. Sword in the Stone. And he went on to uh, illustrate and write all these children's books. Um, the Wing Ding Dilly was among our favorite. He wrote Jethro and Joel were a troll, a two-headed troll. And I mean, just all this stuff and it was just beautifully illustrated with crayons, these beautiful illustrations with crayons. And I, I learned that <laughs> from, from him. I learned about uh, there, there are books and there are authors. You can talk about both because you one of the things I always recommend people do is when they uh, find a really good book, try to find out, you know, we have the, I didn't have, have even have Google back then. And, and, and you can go and, and you can Google these names and, and find out if they wrote other books. And in many cases, if the author wrote one good book, he wrote more than one good <laughs> book. And so I brought home, for example, I was at a, just at a used bookstore, you know, you, and, and, and there are not many of these left, which is the real, a real tragedy. Uh, if you still have a half-priced books, uh, that's what we have here back east and in the Midwest. Um, you still are able to go in, and, and there's a lot of used books in very good condition. And you can go in the children's yeah. section find all kinds of things. Uh, but in the old used bookstores, which had a lot of older books, I, I, I found Farley Mowat's The Dog Who Wouldn't Be. And I, I looked at the cover, and I, I'd never heard of, of the book. I'd never heard of Farley Mallet. Hmm. I looked at the recommendations in the back, and they were pretty sterling. So I got it. I brought it home. And like many times, I would sit there at the dining room table when my wife was doing the dishes looking at, at, at something. And I bought several books at these bookstore. And I picked up Farley Mallet's The Doggy Wouldn't Be. I opened it up. I read the first paragraph and knew I was in the hands of a master. And so I went and found out Farley Mount was the great Canadian storyteller, the great Canadian naturalist wow. and storyteller. He just died a couple of years ago. But anything you read by Farley Mount is going to be good. Huh. And so we found out, found some of his other books and read those. And, hmm. um, and there's other authors we can talk about who, who you find that, that if they have, you know, they, they've written one good thing, go out and find what else they've written. And again, that's a lot easier to do now than when I was doing it. So that's that's one, if you want a technique, that's one thing to do is just to simply, those those authors that you find that uh, that you like, go find out what else they've written and you'll find some treasures. I'll have to do that sometime. We do have a used bookstore here in town. It's actually fairly new. So we went years without having really anything other than a Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. And then um, someone built this used bookstore. And I mean, she's one of those people who goes and buys like to estate sales and we'll buy every book in the house that they want to get rid of. And so, I mean, it's been quite the treasure trove at times. And there's also a lot of junk. You have to spend time sifting through everything, but it's been so much fun after years of not having anything other than a new bookstore. Right. Well, and you know, hunting for literary treasures is a lot like hunting for real treasures. You, mm. you do have to sift hmm. through things, and there's going to be some hits and misses. But I would, I, I, I'm just a book lover, so I would, I would go to the stores. And my method is to buy the books and put them in the plastic bags, and leave them in my trunk for a few days until I can sneak them in so my wife doesn't see them. And then we'll put them <laughs> in a spot that she won't notice, and then they'll slowly come out, and I'll put them in, in the stack. So she doesn't notice that the, uh, you know, over a, just a couple day period anyway, that the library has expanded and, and uh, this is, this is, but this is, this has been the case with a lot with several other authors too. Uh, Sterling North, uh, many people know his, his book, Rascal. 
uh, which is about a raccoon. And I remember yeah. reading that and thinking, you know, that's that's really good. And then one day I was uh, I was actually visiting a school in um, in uh, North Carolina at Cape Fear. There, I think it's Wilmington, North Carolina. I was at Cape Fear. And there's a little bookstore down there. It's where Cape Fear, where one of the great pirates was captured. And um, so I, I go into the bookstore and I'm, I'm looking <laughs> in the stacks and I see this book called So Dear to My Heart, Sterling North. I, said, I, don't, I didn't know he wrote anything else. I, I open the book up and the first paragraph has me hooked. <laughs> so I buy it and I bring it home. And you know, my, my children are all out of the house now. So I read to my wife. <laughs> uh, we, we, we've continued the tradition uh, after dinner. And so I, I read this book to my wife, and we both agreed this was one of the best books we have ever read. And so uh, Sterling North has, has a, a number of different books. Uh, Billy C. Clark, one of the great – I live in Kentucky. He's probably the greatest storyteller Kentucky ever produced. And huh. it turns out – I don't re- even remember why I happened upon him – uh, it was somebody had made a reference to a book called Song of the River, and I bought a copy of it, pu- published by the Jesse Stewart Foundation, you know, a little, little publishing house. I bought this book, found out that he had written it. Uh, well, his wife had found the manuscript for it on the back seat of his old Dodge when they got married. He was from huh. Catlettsburg, Kentucky. He was the only person from Catlettsburg who had ever gone to college. And it, uh, it's uh, Catlettsburg is there where the the big Sandy River flows into the Ohio River, and he grew up there. He knows uh, he knew the names of the animals and the names of all the plants. Wow. And you know, one of those writers, uh, uh, regional writers, and um, turns out that he had written this story, the old, uh, Song of the River, was fourteen years old, and it, and, and the, the the manuscript in the back of his Dodge was submitted to the publisher with, without any changes. Wow. And it was compared when it came out to Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea back in the night. Wow. A beautiful story. And then it turns out he had written a whole bunch of other stories that are equally as good. And the thing, by the, another, another topic here, is I think that most great writing is regional. And by that, I mean, it's written by people who grew up in a certain place huh. and they know the, the place, they know the land, they know the flora and fauna there, they, they know all the names of things. And, uh, and, and it's because I think mm-hmm. that the hardest thing for a writer to do uh, among all the plot elements or, or, or the story elements, you know, setting a characterization and plot being the three main ones, the hardest one for an author is the setting. Interesting. Is, is creating a believable world. And you only do that by knowing the names of things. Uh, this was how uh, uh, Tolkien pulled off the Lord of the Rings. You notice he names the plants. Hmm. Uh, everything has a name, and, and it's a part of a long history. And uh, and you read writers like Billy C. Clark and Sterling North and Farley Mowat, and they've all got they they all have have a, a real strong sense of setting in their stories. It's a real world because they hmm. live there. They grew up in it. You know, so. That's, I could tilt that in just thinking about Lonesome Gods that I just finished by Louis L'Amour set in the California desert. Mm-hmm. And it's, his, he knew it's it. set he historically knew it. in the past. But yeah, you could you just had this sense of being there because he w- had been there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I can say <laughs> as someone in California, California. <laughs> yeah, living in a desert in California <laughs> and not far from that setting that. I couldn't believe how accurate it was. Like I many times, even though he wasn't using the names we use for places now, and I'm not finished with the book yet, but I could envision like he he did a very good job as someone who's local. He described everything very accurately. It was it was interesting to me to read it and be able to say, oh, yeah, that's which I feel that way kind of about Steinbeck because Steinbeck writes writes in in Grapes of Wrath about the valley that I live in and Steinbeck too. It was interesting as a child, I was able to identify a couple of places that were still, they were condemned, but they were basically, they had never been removed. So they were still there. And you could see that he was really talking about physical places. You know, I never thought about that before. I think as a child, um, when I would try to write really bad fiction, <laughs> I would think about, you know, that I needed to like invent this exciting place that wasn't here mm-hmm. in order to make my story interesting. So it's fascinating to me that really, the real place is what makes a writer believable. I just never thought about that before. 
a good writer knows that the most exciting place is here. Hmm. And and I remember when um, you know I grew up in the West too, uh, in California, and, okay. and my my father would take us out camping every other weekend during during the wow. summer. And so we went all over the West, and and that was still in the days when you could still get a taste of the old West. There were so many little ghost towns that were still left at that time. Yeah. You could go up to Lake Tahoe. And in my generation, we all grew up watching Bonanza TV and the Ponderosa yeah. Ranch was really there. And, uh, uh, and, and that, that's one of the things that I think is, I, I really lament is that a lot of modern children don't know Westerns anymore. They're, they're mm-hmm. not a, a prominent genre in film anymore. And they're not, you know, we don't read much about it. But this is America's great myth. You know, every culture has had its great myth. Mm-hmm. And, and for the Greeks, it was it was the Iliad and the Odyssey, the the Trojan War, and the Greeks fighting the Trojans. That was their modern myth. That was those were the books they read over and over and over again. The, the Iliad and the Odyssey. For the Romans, it was Virgil's Aeneid, the story of Aeneas, uh, a, a Trojan prince who flees the burning city mm-hmm. with his family and founds the new Troy on the banks of the Tiber River in Italy. And um, and for every civilization has a story behind it, and for us it has always been the conquest of the West. Hmm. And for for American children not to have any clue about this is, I think, very unfortunate. Uh, and 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 reading stories, and I think Louis L'Amour is one of the best. Uh, my kids ate up those books, and we have a whole big shelf of them still at home, these old paperbacks, and they read those things over and over again. And I think it's really important, and particularly somebody like Louis L'Amour, who's operating in the old heroic tradition, because mm. the West, the Western was the last heroic genre. Uh, we're, we're all cynics now and, and ironists, uh, but in the old Westerns, there was, uh, there was a mm. sincerity to them, and, and there was an, uh, an iron, uh, a code of morality there. It was a, a comfortable world, and it was comfortable because mm. it was like the real world. There really are, you know, transcendent truths, and, and they're glorified in those books it would make my father-in-law happy he his <laughs> the john wayne movies are his favorite well and he grew up we're in we're in washington state tumbleweeds really do still blow across the road and you have to stop for them <laughs> but he yeah. and he grew up on a cattle ranch so wow. that's i remember that's his favorite yeah. genre yeah and i think you know one of the one of the scariest things that ever happened to me in a classroom. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here at Highlands Latin School here in Louisville, Kentucky. And the, the, the scariest thing that ever happened to me was when I don't remember why I, why I needed uh, some John Wayne movie uh, as, a, as an example of uh, a metaphor for something. And three of the boys in my class had never heard of John Wayne. Oh. <laughs> and this, this, you know, he was an icon for American males for, for, mm-hmm. and to not even know about some of those great, West, I know we're talking about books, but you know the way we tell our, sto- our our ourselves stories now, really more than anything else, is film. And to not know the sons of Katie Elder and the Cowboys and El Dorado, this is what this is what defined us as a culture. Uh, is is those ideals in those movies, and it's a real hmm. shame that, that uh, our kids don't watch those anymore. So, are these? Is that mainly the kind of book you're looking for, like the, the forgotten American classics, like Western type? Well, I think I, you know, uh, I, I give a I give a talk called uh, "Blood and Morality: The Tradition Tradition of Adventure Fiction for Boys," hmm. and so the westerns play a prominent part in, in that list because the the whole uh, that 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 title "Blood and Morality" was something that Digby Anderson talked about when he wrote the review for National Review Magazine back in the early '80s hmm. for William Bennett's The Book of Virtues. Oh. And what he said was, he said, "You know, I have what I call my reactionary library, and when I find these old books of the old adventure that we used to read, we boys, uh, I, I, I put them in the library. And and you know, The Book of Virtues is nice, but it's all of the." All the things in it are very short things or hmm. short excerpts from longer works. What happened to all those great boy adventure books hmm. uh, that we used to read when I was when I was young? And he named them. And in fact, I think you know, talking about lost classics, a lot of homeschoolers are now familiar with the G. A. Henty books. Yes. So those have come mm-hmm. back into print. That happened about two years after that review was printed. So I have my theory about why that happened. But he, he mentioned, <laughs> oh, he mentioned a whole bunch of other authors that are pr- probably politically incorrect because there's a lot of toxic masculinity in them. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> C.S. Forrester, who wrote The African Queen, which was later made into the movie, 
but with Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. Uh, but he also wrote the Horatio Hornblower books, which are just incredible examples. Oh. They're, they're books about leadership, really, because it follows the course of Horatio Hornblower, a character loosely based on um, Horatio Nelson, who was the great hero of the Battle of Trafalgar, the Naval Battle of Trafalgar. Hmm. And so it's it's about him going up the ranks in the Royal Navy over a long period, over his over his lifetime. And so there's all these great examples of, of leadership in there. There's all these other books in there, adventure books, and they involve danger. They they might even involve blood. But the reason Bigby Anderson called these kinds of books blood and morality books was because there was action and adventure. But again, there was this iron code of morality that was assumed in the books. And that's exactly what we want our boys mm. to be familiar with, I think, is that it's good to be good. Yeah. And it's good to fight for what's right. Yes. And, and, and this sort of things, because we live, you know, what you were saying, we live in such a safe world. And this is what we glorify is safety. Well, you know, that's a fine life if you, if you want to be uh, sort of um, self-interested. But life is full of situations where you need to help other people. And sometimes that involves risk on your part. And we need to make our kids aware of the fact that we, we need to risk ourselves for the good of others. Mm. And, um, and that's what the, a lot of those books do. But yeah, I have a whole talk on, on boys' adventure fiction. And there's a lot of lost classics um, on that list. If somebody wanted to hear your talk, is it for sale somewhere or do they need to figure out where you are and go hear you live? Well, um, I think that we can probably, I, I have retired that talk because I gave it for like five years and <laughs> it's probably the most popular talk I ever gave, actually. Um, we probably need to put that up on, on, on our website at Memoria Press. Yeah. So I think maybe we'll, maybe we'll go ahead maybe next month and publish that or maybe before, um, before this is a, a broadcast, maybe we can put that up on our site. And Yeah, that'd be great. Let us know. I would love to put a link in the show notes for that. Oh, sure. No, we can do that. That's no problem. That's no problem. Work it out. Okay, sounds good. But, yeah, but that 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 list, you know, and and um, of course we did. I did that talk, and then I started. Well, what about girls? And so <laughs> we actually have a, a the essential girls book list. Uh, also, in addition to my essential Martin's essential uh, book list for boys, uh, because they do. You know, there are some varying interests. Uh, one of the one of the biggest differences I think between girls and boys is they're interested in, in, in different things. Sometimes. Yeah. Not all the time. I mean, our, my boys, I had three boys and a girl and they loved the little house and prairie books, uh, even though the, the, the protagonist was a girl uh, and girls like, uh, like books where the boys are protagonist too. But I think more boys are interested in some more uh, adventurous types of things. They seem yeah. to, 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 to be attracted to those uh, more so than girls. And I think that's where we, you know, if you listen to a lot of the advice given on reading for for children, and the crisis of reading for boys apparently is pretty pronounced. All the articles I see on it are an indication. And part of the problem is every time you see one of these articles about the crisis in boys' book reading, they give the worst uh, prescriptions that you could possibly imagine. You know, boys need to get in touch with their feelings. And, you know, feelings. I mean, yes. yeah. I mean, when my wife—if you told my wife that when we were raising our boys, she's a they are thinking way too much about their own feelings. That they need to get out and take the trash and take the trash out and mow the lawn. You know, so. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah. My boys are ten and sixteen. I'm with your wife on that. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I I think I might need to get your girl list also. That's that's something I've been thinking about lately. Is because I, I read aloud and I've got two boys and I've got two girls and I mean, there's a sense in which they all like all of the books. But I am always trying to make sure that nobody's falling through the cracks, that they're kind of getting books for their angle in life mm -hmm. or whatever. And so I feel like for a very long time, because I was a girl raised in an all-girl household, my library was weak on, you know, quote unquote, boy books. And so that was where I put my focus, mm -hmm. trying to hunt down good books for boys and buy them and add them to the library. And so I feel like now looking at my library... Oh, maybe I need to think a little more about girl books. Like I kind of swung the pendulum the other way. And now I'm a little weak on girl books. Of course, as long as you have Jane Austen, you're usually pretty good. But uh, <laughs> and Anne of Green Gables. I, I think I need to look at your list, especially if you have forgotten and lost classics for girls. So that'd be fun. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, you know, there's the Little House and the Prairie yes. books, the Anne of Green Gables books. You know, my wife would 
read those to my mm-hmm. daughter before they went to bed. And and then the uh, Von Trapp family singers about. Uh, oh, yeah. I forgot about that Maria one. Von Trapp and her family. Uh, that was a great, a great book that they loved. And and yeah, there was a number of, uh, of you know, Sarah Plain and Tall. There's Caddy Woodlawn. There's a, there's a bunch out there. And the other thing with girls is they love horses. Now, I grew up with horses, and I grew up in an area in Los Angeles County that's still a horse area. And, and yet it was my daughter who just, and it was my sister as well, who loved horses. And, and so any of those great books about the horses, Misty of Chincoteague by Marguerite Henry, uh, the Black oh, Stallion yeah. books uh, are always going to be a big hit, I think, with with girls. Probably more so than boys. Boys seem to favor dogs, uh, and that's why a <laughs> lot of uh, that's why a lot of yeah a lot of Billy C. Clark's books uh, are about dogs. Moon Eyed Hound and and some of those some of those books. Uh, they both like animals, but they they I notice they tend to to prefer different kinds of animals. So I never thought about that. I will say my boys oh, yeah. did love the Billy and Blaze books. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Great but yes. I never really thought about how most of their books were dog books. Were as if they're that mm-hmm. old. They're not that old. But there's something about a boy and his dog. Uh, Bill Pete's The Winged Ding Dilly is about a dog who is cursed by a witch in the book, and he's made into this monstrosity of the neck of a giraffe and the head of a moose and the legs of, you know, whatever. And it's about this boy going and finding his dog and not realizing that he's been turned into this monster. And, uh, you know, there are a bunch of really good, the dog who wouldn't be is the one I mentioned okay. from far yeah. out, a wonderful story. I think that's the book I'm going to buy before the episode's over. The dog who wouldn't be. <laughs> it's really, it is. The, I think it's the best I think it's the best animal story that that we ever read. Really? Who wouldn't be? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, Misty's back, and now she knows I'm buying something. I'll have to race her to do it. <laughs> oh, we we already have that one. That's oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I think that one was out of print when I picked it up uh, years ago, and I, I think it's back in print oh, now. It is. It's only yeah. seven dollars. Mass market paperback on Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's pretty oh, good. Yes. I don't know if you all remember this, uh, but when I was in school. They would send home, or they they give us in class the old Scholastic book catalogs, which was these real thin paper, sometimes four, sometimes eight pages, and they had all these great books for kids in them. You know, Armstrong Sperry's Call It Courage, which is another one of my favorite for favorites for oh, boys. Yeah. Uh, that was in there, um, and another one that was in there was Lost in the Barrens by Farley Mallet, and that was that was another one of our great favorites about a a boy, Canadian boy, and an uh, Eskimo boy friend of his. Who who go off on a hunt with these Indi- with these Indians who are starving because of the cold weather and they go to try to find elk and they get lost. Great great old story. But there's a lot of those old a lot of those old books were were you know when Scholastic wasn't publishing some of the some of the trash quite frankly that they've published in recent years. Other than, not all of it, but but some of it. And they they were publishing boy adventure books. Hmm. And uh, so a lot of those books were were in those old Scholastic. Catalogs. Man, all I bought from those were the Babysitters Club. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is uh, it's not bad. It's just sort of mediocre. Yeah, uh, yeah. it was twaddle. <laughs> I think you, um, even even in childhood, had better taste than I. That's what I'm gathering from this. <laughs> I just remember going home after we got our catalog and just begging our moms for three or four dollars to buy one of these books. And yes. You know, and, and boys too. I mean, they, because a lot of those books were geared towards boys in a way that they're not anymore. And uh, yeah, so. so true. So to back up a little bit, because we talked about Louis L'Amour and we talked about G.A. Henty, and there is a criticism I've heard about both of them, and I'm wondering how you'd respond to it. And that is kind of this attitude of if you've read one, you've read them all, that they're formulaic in some way. I haven't read enough of them to even judge whether or not that's a fair criticism, but I'm wondering what you would say to that. Oh, I think it is a fair criticism. Um, okay. J.K. Chesterton said said it about G.A. Henty. It's basically the same boy in all the stories in just different historical events. So <laughs> I think what we did is, is you know, I think he probably wrote over 100 books like that. Well, you don't want to read all 100, but you want to pick a few out okay. of there. And if particularly if it's a historical period you're interested in, uh, it's kind of a, a first-person view of that of, of that time when those events are going on. Um, whether it's 
under Drake's flag about Sir Francis Drake or the Cat of Bubasties, which is about, you know, Moses is a character in there. Um, mm. uh, whether it's, um, I'm trying to think of something for the temple about the destruction of the, of the temple and um, the seventh. Oh, temple. right. You know, yeah. just pick a few of them. And yeah, there's going to come a point where even your, your child is going to think, well, yeah, I, I think I've read enough of these now. It's the same was true of the the Tarzan books. You know, there was there was a whole bunch of those, and you don't necessarily need to read the whole series, but one or two, three, four, maybe is okay. Um, Louis L'Amour is 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 the same way, but you want to read enough of them where you imbibe the values that are in those books, and it takes a few, I think, to do that. I can tell you that my oldest son and my daughter read probably not all of those books, but they read a lot of them. And they were unanimous in the three books in the, in, of Louis L'Amour that they thought were the best. I asked them at one time. And they said the three, the th- those three, bo- the, the three best of the Louis L'Amour books were Fallon, F-A-L-L-O-N, Fallon, mm-hmm. Last Stand at Papago Wells, and The Sackett Brand. There was a whole series of the mm-hmm. Sackett books that he wrote and that were made into movies, but uh, Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott and I think some others. But those were their three favorite of all the Louis L'Amour books. Um, so just read those three. All right. And then you might still want to read more. And if so, that's fine. Go ahead. Lonesome Gods. <laughs> yeah. I was, oh, yeah. Do you like that one? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're, I'm about to start that one as a read aloud just because sure. it was Pam, who is our third co-host who's not here today. She kept telling me I needed to do this. And she was talking to me about how it was California geography. Mm-hmm so much in it. And um, I realized, oh, I didn't really choose anything. I try to incorporate something every year that gives us California history, California geography, something like that. And I just kind of didn't when I was planning this homeschool year. And so I thought, you know what, we'll add that in as a read aloud and I'll kind of check my California history box. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> for, and, for the time. <laughs> and, and then, of course, uh, you know, you have uh, the book Shane, which the movie with Alan Ladd was based on. That's a very good book, a very good Western. You mentioned uh, the uh, Little Bridges books by Ralph Moody and several other books in that series, mm-hmm. but Little Bridges was the best. And that's that takes place in the early 20th century, but out in Colorado. So it was still in a, in a certain way, almost the frontier. And then another one that I, uh, another Western that uh, my boys loved was called A Texas Ranger by N.A. Jennings. It's the actual um, <laughs> autobiographical account of a former Texas Ranger uh, when all those when all that violence was going along, uh, going on along the border between the United States and Mexico in the late 19th century. And it's riveting. Um, and there's, in fact, there's a lot of really great firsthand autobiographical accounts of the West. Uh, we were, you know, we were literate at that time. We were, literacy was fairly widespread. So you had people writing about it. That in the mm-hmm. Civil War, uh, somebody said that Civil War was the most, one of the most literate wars ever fought because, you know, it was a very oh, literate culture that was engaged in that war. So we have a lot of books about it. And uh, you know, reading about the Indians, too, there was a book that came out recently. And yeah, you need to be careful probably with children, but adults probably need to read it. It's um, not Comanche Moon. Uh, oh, gosh. I'm but it was about uh, it was about Quanna Parker, the last Comanche warrior, and how that story was connected. It was uh, Kathleen Ann Parker, who was one oh. of the, probably the most famous of all the women who were young women who were kidnapped by the Comanches. And it's a uh, it's it's a brilliant book, and I'm I'll have to uh, Google here while we're talking the name of that book. Again, but uh, it was under the command or something <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, a lot of those stories. There's a whole bunch of great stories about the West. I mean, you could you could spend a lot of time on on westerns, and I think it's worth spending a lot of time on those on those books. Empire of the Summer Moon. Empire. There you go. Empire of the Summer Moon. I said, again, there's some stuff that happens in there because the Comanches were the most violent of all the Indian okay. tribes and the most warlike. And so the things they did are, are described in that book in some cases. But, uh, but there's other books about Indians. But if, you, if, you're, a, if you're an adult, it's, yeah. a, it's a very interesting book to read. And the whole story of how Quanah Parker, it's called Quanah Parker because he was Kathleen Ann Parker's son and nobody knew it. And there was this, huh. there was this uh, Comanche tribe headed by him who was causing a lot of problems on the frontier. And when he was finally brought in, the last of the Comanche warriors to be brought in, he, wa- he walked in himself to an army post and he said, where is my mother? Hmm. Because she had been taken back by American army forces. And it turns out she had been recaptured 
but she was fully Indian by that time and did not want to be in white society. She hmm. was suicidal, hmm. and uh, I think eventually, I can't remember if she actually committed suicide herself or not, but she lamented, going, you know, she wanted to go back to the Comanches, hmm. and, uh, and she had died two years before Quanah Parker walked into that army station, and they had to tell him that his mother had died in white captivity in a strange way. So, Wow. Oh, fascinating story. Yes. I've never heard of any of that. I'm going to have to get this book. Yeah, it's it's riveting. So, you know, you're seeking out these lesser known books. So what do you say to the people who just say, you know, there's enough popular books to keep us busy forever. So why do I need to spend time looking for anything that's lost or forgotten? Which I know not everybody really has to do this. I mean, we could just find your list and buy off of that and not do the work ourselves. But I mean, what's the value in going back in time and finding these old books? I, I'd say there are still a lot of really good books that are being published, but it's like you could ask that same question about the books you read in your own education. I mean, there's a reason that we have uh, a body of books called The Great Books. It's because they're mm -hmm. the best that's been thought inside. And uh, I think you should major in the majors and not in the minors. And, and mm -hmm. you're... you're you need to, the books that you read need as much as possible uh, to be good books. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said that the slightest knowledge of the greatest things is greater than the greatest knowledge of the slightest things. And so mm. I think we need to focus on those essentials. We need to focus on the best books. And unfortunately, a lot of the best books have, have fallen into oblivion. And so I, the reason I do it is because I just want good literature for my children. If it was in print, yeah. I'd take it. <laughs> but there was a lot of stuff that's not in print anymore, particularly for boys, I'd say. And so it's just a matter of, of reading good literature. It's not a matter of, it's not better because it's a lost classic. It's just better because it's a classic. Hmm. Yeah. I, I've had boys who are early and avid readers, and it can be a trick keeping them in books. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would, you know, I, I mentioned Armstrong Sperry's um, Call It Courage, which was one of those scholastic books I read when I was in, in fourth grade, I think. And Aww. my boys, I'd, I'd give them good books and books that were appropriate to their age that they could enjoy. And so they, they loved it because of that. And so they'd come, they'd finish a book. They'd come to me and they'd say, uh, Dad, I'm finished with that book you gave me. Um, you want to give me another one? I'd, I'd give them a copy of Call It Courage. And they'd say, Dad, every time I ask you for a new book, you give me that same book. And I said, that's because you need to read it again. <laughs> and so now uh, during at Christmas, I uh, every Christmas, I wrap three copies of Call It Courage and give it to them in their stockings every year. And they take it out. <laughs> <laughs> and they they shake awesome. their heads and look at each other and roll their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. So Armstrong Sperry, did he write other books that we should be hunting down? You know, I, I re read a couple other of his books, and they're good, but they're nothing quite like that book. You know, some, okay. some people, they write, write a good book, but not all their others are, are yeah. quite as good. Uh, and and there's, there's more um, there's Armstrong Sperry's I haven't read, so there may be some in there. But I think that one won the uh, uh, Newbery Award or something. Uh, it won one of the big yeah. awards. I have I have a copy of it and it seems like there's the seal on the front yes, for there is, some right. award. That's what I'm so, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I'm wondering if there's personal or well, it's not it's for my eight year old son, some book counseling. Book counseling. <laughs> <laughs> he is the kind who is completely obsessed with red wall. We had to hide uh. the red wall for a little while because he wouldn't read anything else. So when I hid the red wall, he went straight to Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And has memorized every chapter name in order. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but he's pretty sure that fantasy is the only genre that really yes, exists and that's, in the world. That's true. And of course, I think that happened. I mean, in, in my generation, you know, I remember my best friend on my street. And he disappeared for three or four days because he was reading Lord <laughs> of the Rings and didn't want to be bothered. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so that was, that was one of the books back then that boys particularly did that with. Um, and of course, in our generation, it's been the Harry Potter books. Yeah. And of course, those are controversial because of some of the content. I'm one of those people that, that get asked, well, what do you think of, you know, the Hunger Games yeah, or, right. or the Harry Potter books? And my thing with the Harry Potter books was just, I got two questions. Well, are they really great literature? And then are they dangerous? And I would, I'd say, A, no, they're not great literature. There's a distinction between the good books and the great books. John Sr., who 
was the head of the English department at the University of Kansas for many years in the 50s and 60s, he made a distinction between the 100 great books and the 1,000 good books. And he said, you need to read the 1,000 good books before you can read the 100 great books, because they give you this background knowledge that you need to read the great books. And I'd say that, you know, that uh, the Harry Potter books, they have a respectable place in the good books, but they're not great. Are they dangerous? Yes. And furthermore, the better the book is, the more dangerous it is. Hmm. Uh, I remember, you know, in uh, in college, there'd be kids that did not read and they would come to college and somebody would give them a copy of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged or something mm-hmm. with that egoistic philosophy of hers. And they would just be captured by it because they hadn't read anything else. They had nothing to compare it to. They didn't realize that the, the setting was lousy. The characters were cardboard characters and it was, they really aren't really aren't very good. And, uh, but they didn't know that because the only thing they had read was these books. And so I think what happened with the Harry Potter books was you had all these kids who'd never read anything else. And so they read the Harry Potter uh. books and were captured by them. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, I don't think the problem was the Harry Potter books. The problem was you had all these kids out there that had never read anything else. You know, so, um, so I think uh, mm-hmm. boys tend to get captured by certain. And that's OK for a while, but they have eventually have to come out of it. And read other things. I, you know, one of my boys I love the Harry Potter books. Mm-hmm. I he read them over and over again. We finally got him off those, and uh, he's a he's a reader of a lot of different things today, and knows the quality of literature because he's read he's read more widely. So the biggest danger is just having kids who are not well read, and they'll get captured by something. And if it's not Harry Potter, it's going to be something else. Mm-hmm. So when your son was reading the books over and over, did did you have to hide them? <laughs> <laughs> No, we didn't hide him. We just we just uh, made sure that he had access uh, to a lot of other books. And like I said, he he eventually went on to to other things, mm-hmm. and they grow out of that thing. And 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 particularly fantasy now is so popular. Yeah, look at them. Every other movie that's made, it seems like, is a fantasy movie. I think part of that is because of video games, quite honestly, um, oh. which is unfortunate. But. Um, you know, there were very few science. I loved science fiction when I was in high school. I loved Arthur C. Clarke, Childhood's End, and some of those books. But you rarely saw a movie on them. They were sort of a specialty genre. Yeah. And and like I said, now every other movie that comes out is a, is a fantasy movie, and I'm I'm tired of it now. <laughs> <laughs> I used to like it, but I'm tired of it now. Um, I don't even read. You know, I read a lot, and I. I very seldom read anything that's a fantasy book because it just doesn't seem real to me. And it seems very derivative of the great fantasy books like the Lord of the Rings and right. the Chronicles yeah. of Narnia. Um, but we've, we've been over this territory before it's time for something different now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you about science fiction, actually. Do you have any favorite science fiction books that are appropriate for kids? And I, I mean, my kids, my youngest is 10. So, older elementary into high school, but I'm just, I'm not super well read in that area. And I always feel like it could be dangerous. <laughs> so do you have any, you know, like a top three that are, you think are good for boys that are maybe junior high or high school or something? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, there are a couple of things that come to mind. One is the old, um, well, of course there's Jules and I'm going back to older classics here. Okay. So mm-hmm. Jules Verne, of course, was one of the great oh, yeah. old writers of science fiction, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth and Mysterious Island and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Those were great books. Um, and they're not they're, they're Science fiction has changed since then. Yeah. But I'd say that Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, who wrote The War of the Worlds and, and a number of other uh, science fiction books, really good writer. Really good. Hmm. Uh, you read, in fact, in the movie, I noticed that what they did was that with the, the uh, Steven Spielberg movie with Tom Cruise in it, which I thought was a one of the great science fiction movies. At the very beginning, they read the the narrator reads the first haunting paragraph of the War hmm. of the Worlds because it was just so well written. Um, and then Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, the Pellucidar books and the uh, John Carter books. Uh, they're recent movie was just made a couple years ago called John Carter, which was uh, taking the Edgar Rice Burroughs stories. You know, a lot of that stuff that was printed in the old Pulp Fiction magazines that boys used to read. I like a lot of that stuff. There's just something more classic about it to me. Okay. Thank you. Because I've got a son that I think would enjoy that, but I just, 
I don't even know where to start with that genre. Uh-huh. I didn't read much of it. And what I did read was in college and probably not great for junior high and high school. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the, you know, there was a lot of great old pulp fiction. Uh, you had Edgar Rice Burroughs was one of the, the course and if you've been, if you're in cal if you're in southern california it sounds like you're a little more inland but you're in southern california there's a there's a little town called tarzana yeah and it was named because that's where he lived uh in his later years and they named the town after him i did not know that but, oh yeah absolutely oh. um and so uh there's other great pulp fiction writers and one of them was johnston mccauley who wrote the zorro books another oh. Oh. really good writer and and uh you know those were Again, adventure stories. Uh, uh, Zorro, also Baroness Ortsy, who wrote the Scarlet Pimpernel hmm. series. There's a whole bunch of books in that series. And, um, of course, the great movie that came from them, which was a made-for-TV movie, believe it or not, <laughs> that starred um, Anthony Andrews as the Scarlet Pimpernel, who's this British nobleman who goes in disguise to France to save uh, the royalty who are being guillotined by the, the Jacobins in France during the French Revolution. And um, the the movie starred Anthony Andrews as the Scarlet Pimpernel, Jane Seymour as his uh, mm-hmm. wife, and had Ian McKellen, who played uh, Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings yeah. movies, play Chauvelin, the villain in in that movie. And it was it was probably one of the maybe the best swashbuckler I've ever seen on film. That's, oh wow, that's one of our family favorites. Yeah, really? Yeah, <laughs> is it? Yeah, <laughs> ours too. Sword fight at the end between the Scarlet Pimpernel and Chauvelin is just got to be the best thing. Uh, and yeah. I, okay, I'm I read the book down. after seeing that movie, and I said, "Well, that was one case where the movie was actually better than the book." <laughs> movie was, yeah, yeah, right, right. But, yeah, not because the book was particularly bad; just because the movie was so wow. so good. Yeah, and that, of course, the movie was uh, was two of the books. It was the Scarlet Pimpernel and, and the book El Dorado, which was in that series by Baron. Oh Wilson. wow! Okay, well, I know what we're going to do next Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> You'll love it. Thank you. All right. Well, it's probably time for us to wrap this up. So, if there is one last exhortation that you would like to give our listeners, what would it be, Martin? Oh, I think the best thing that I ever did for my family was after dinner, we would push away the dishes and I would read the next chapter, some uh, adventure book. Hmm. We did that every night. And Hmm. when, you know, it came to the point where there was, there was only one boy left, my youngest boy. And one day he was 16 years old and I broke out farmer boy. by (laughs) I'm not going to listen to that. That's a, that's a story for kids. And I, I start reading it. And after I got done, he said, well, you know, you can. You can read another chapter if you want. Um, <laughs> and to this day, I still read to my wife. And, and we're really into Kentucky history and, and, mm. and uh, Kentucky literature. We have a great literary tradition here. Um, so just reading, read to your kids after dinner at the table. Make them all sit and stay. And I'll tell you one little story. We would, I'd make the kids sit there. My youngest, he was the little Tasmanian devil in the family, you know, and so he would get up and he'd start to creep away while I was reading. So you get back mm-hmm. in your chair, sit down and listen. And so he called me. This was last year. He said, "You know, when you're old, I'm going to wheel you up in your wheelchair to the table, <laughs> and I'm going to read the, the, the Twilight series. And if you get up and you start to roll over and say, you get back here, you sit down and you listen." <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You'll be able to just turn your hearing aid off at that point. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. There was a whole discussion on reading aloud I was tempted to go into, but we really should wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have all talk on All that. that means is we have to have you on again, Martin. That's all it means. <laughs> I'd be glad to. All right. That sounds good to me. Well, Thank you both for joining me today. And um, we will catch you again. Martin, I think we'd like to have you on next season. So I really do mean sure. it when I say we'll catch you again. Just let me know. <laughs> all right. All right thank have you. a great weekend. Okay. You all too. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. If you haven't already, we invite you to go into your podcast player and leave us a review and why not make it a five-star one, huh? 
Links to the books we talked about today can be found in the show notes at scalaysisters.com slash SS43. In our next episode, Misty and I have a delightful conversation with the one and only Angelina Stanford. We talked about the importance of books, but to be honest, I think talking with Angelina is a joy regardless the topic. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone, so open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. I'm not hearing any sound. Uh... Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I think we lost Misty here. Hopefully she will be able to show back up here.